Friends, would you believe it? It's actually gonna be one week left before Christmas. Where has the time gone, hey? I, last Christmas didn't seem like that long ago for me. And if you were here last week and you happened to hear my sermon, you might have recalled that I'm far from the most festive person at this time of year. But since for the past month or so, our church happened to be reflecting and studying Luke's version of the Christmas story, it's given me this opportunity to reflect on what it is the Bible is really trying to highlight about the story. Like, what is the point it's trying to make while telling me this story? Right? Like, yeah, of course, the birth of the Messiah was definitely really important, but I find it interesting that two of the Gospels, Mark and John, basically skips this story, and Matthew gives like seven verses. So Luke talks about the surrounding events regarding the birth of Christ by far at length. He gives us like a like hundred verses. And if I were to boil down what I learned through Luke's narrative here into one word, it would be hope. That first and foremost, Luke wants us to know that the birth of Jesus was this fulfillment of these long-awaited promises that God's people have been waiting for, hoping for. Now, hope is not just a really important concept in the Bible, but I would try to make the case that it is also something that is crucial to any healthy human existence, right? Because the feeling that we get as we anticipate the future will determine what we make of the present. If the future that we anticipate is better than the present, then we might consider ourselves hopeful. However, if we feel pessimistic about what the future holds, we have despair. And this is going to make a dramatic difference to how we understand what we're going through right now. Okay, So let me illustrate this through a story of two domestic assistants that's worked for our family before, right? The first one, she was an older lady. She wasn't that educated. She never really learned how to read, but she was so incredibly helpful, right? She worked really hard, and she seemed to really appreciate working for us because she got to send the money she earned home so that her kids can go to school and afford better things, and she worked for us until she retired. Then there's also this other assistant that we hired. She was younger, unmarried, maybe just around high school age or just after. And so she should, in theory, have you know, much more energy and vigor, but her attitude was totally different. She would complain about doing work or actively try to avoid it. Then she ended up stealing for us, from us and running away to Kawin Lari with some guy, right? So these are two people with two identical circumstances, they had identical responsibilities and they were paid basically the same amount of money, but the older one had kids who can have a better future, so she considered it a blessing that she could work and invest in that. However, the younger one thought she was stuck working for us. She hated it because the thought of working for us all her life isn't at all an appealing future 
to her. You see, what we think about what tomorrow holds inevitably shapes how we respond to the circumstances of today. Now, the Bible tells us that we have been given this blessed assurance, right, as we sang about, of an ultimate hope, such that whatever is presently happening to us Christians, we can always make the choice to trust that our future is already secured and that it's gonna be better. Now, um, the thing is, we often can't see that choice very well. But as we study here the final paragraphs of uh, Luke's narrative before the actual birth of Christ, what the text actually shows is how the story of Zechariah and how he was finally liberated to fully trust in the hope that he first refused to believe, that the Messiah is indeed coming. And through this story, we are actually given a model about how we can respond rightly when we, can, when we have finally taken the hope of Christmas to heart. Okay, so with that in mind, let us read our text from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and following until the end. It's pretty long, but it's so good and it's worth it. At least I think so. Okay, so Luke chapter 1, verses 57 and following. This is the word of God. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through the hill country, all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then could this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of sin. Because of the tender mercy of our God, well, by the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Okay, so what we basically just read is Zechariah spontaneously quoting the Old Testament, right? Like this song was a mashup of a bunch of different passages from the prophets and like three different psalms because the more general theological point of this text is that the birth of John and later Jesus is the culmination of the story of the whole Old Testament. The moment God's people have been waiting for has now arrived. And so times are going to change for the better. And our text suggests that there are three ways, at least, that we can respond to this reality. Three ways that, if we respond like this, can cultivate this habit of hope that is going to be consistent with this new reality that God is bringing into existence. Okay? So our three points, cultivating a habit of hope, happens by, one, responding to God by demonstrating faith. Two, appreciating how God keeps his promises. And three, embracing our role in God's story. Right? Responding to God, appreciating how God keeps his promises, and embracing our role in God's story. May the Holy Spirit help us to magnify the reality of this beauty of this hope to our hearts. Okay? So point one, cultivating a habit of hope happens by responding to God by demonstrating faith. So before we actually get into Zechariah's prophecy, we have another story, similar somehow to Mary's visit to Elizabeth, which at first, this bit might not seem necessary to the overall story, right? It could have been just that John was born and then Zechariah burst out in this blessing. Why tell this whole story about everyone's astonishment about what his name was? And one reason was likely because Luke wanted to make this orderly, fact-checkable account of the things that happened and the miraculous nature of the events did cause quite a stir. It was a big deal. Everyone made a fuss out of it. And it was talked about in the region. So the anticipation was definitely building and widespread at that time. And this put a bit of a spotlight on John here. And so because you know, Luke's gospel wasn't written too long after the events, Theophilus, who Luke was writing to, could have gone and asked around to verify that this actually happened. But at the same time, based on the narrative, it seems like Luke also wanted to show us there has actually been a growth in the character of Zechariah. You see, the last thing we see Zechariah actually verbalize before he went mute were words of doubt. You might remember how a couple of weeks ago, Tezar preached on how he was about to have his one-in-a-lifetime experience to give the blessing in the temple. But Zechariah lost his ability to speak because of his unbelief about what the angel Gabriel told him was going to happen. And what sticks out to me in the story from verses 57 to 66 is that Zechariah didn't regain his speech after his 70-year-old wife miraculously gave birth which was actually what you would assume, right? 
considering in verse 20 earlier, the angel said that you would be silent until these things take place. Unexpectedly, rather, it was after Zechariah's son was circumcised, eight days after he was born, only after Zechariah confirmed his faith in what the Lord has told him, right? Everyone there expected Zechariah would name his son after himself or one of his relatives, but he defied cultural expectations and named his son John as the Lord told him. Only then was his tongue loosed and he was able to bless the Lord. And John, by the way, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yohanan, which means Yahweh, the Lord, has shown favor. Which is quite appropriate because that's exactly the message that John will be dedicating his life preaching. So Zechariah went from doubting the Lord and being disciplined to trusting the Lord and blessing him precisely through this act of obedience, which demonstrated his heart's readiness to respond with faith. You see, the story actually illustrates beautifully how the blessings of God are not conditioned, but they are actually conditional. Let me explain. You see, Zechariah himself has done nothing to deserve the blessing God is going to give him. In fact, God was going to give him the blessing anyway, despite the fact that he lacked faith. However, Zechariah's personal enjoyment and appreciation of the blessing was conditional upon his faith, you see. It was only after he demonstrated faith through obedience was he liberated to bless the Lord. In other words, faith that's demonstrated by obedience is what will take us, each of us, from knowing theoretically that there is possibly hope to actually being able to live in hope, right? The problem is, though, we often get it twisted. I think we intuitively believe that we need to prove ourselves worthy first, then we can enjoy the blessings that we are hoping for. Because that's how everything else seems like it works, right? Work hard and get rich. Then you'll know what it feels like to be secure and dignified. Look good and be prepared to marry the right person. Then we'll find the acceptance and love we're craving for. Make sure your kids are educated and successful and that you can leave a lasting legacy. Then finally our lives can be significant and of note. Just to name a few examples. But the point I'm making here is that our human nature, I think, tells us that the reward is only warranted by the effort we put in. But the Bible totally subverts this economy. It turns it upside down. We are told that the rich, that we are already rich and taken care of by the generosity of the creator of heaven and earth, God will give us everything new every morning, but that should motivate us to work. The Bible tells us that we're already infinitely loved and accepted, and that's why, actually, we should be loving others. 
And that we're already significant just by the fact that we're made in the image of God. And that's why we take what we do seriously and make it meaningful. You see, friends, the truth that the Bible tells us requires us to completely change our paradigm in order that we may genuinely experience having biblical hopefulness. Now, how each of us can demonstrate our readiness to respond in faith through obedience completely depends on the particular situation that you're placed in. And each of us need to prayerfully work that out with God. And like Zechariah, it might involve something that might be considered unusual to our culture. But there will come a time, for sure, when each of us are faced with a choice, either to conform with cultural expectations or trust what is best in your own eyes, or on the other hand, trust God and choose to live consistently with the narrative, the story that he's given us. And the more that we choose the latter, that we choose faith, will we be freed to notice and consequently be able to praise God for the blessings that he's actually lavished on us. Okay? And we can only get good at doing that if, like Zechariah, we have truly grasped the most lavish thing that God has given us, which is point two. Cultivating a habit of hope happens by appreciating how God keeps his promises. Let us now focus our attention on the actual blessing that Zechariah spoke here in verses 67 to 79. Again, right? It is completely chock full of Old Testament references, which I can't get into a lot right now, but they communicate at least two main things. Most prominently, first of all, that it is through surveying God's history with Israel and what has been revealed through his prophets, Zechariah was able to triumphantly conclude that in Jesus, God is indeed sending this messianic king that was promised in the Old Testament. This person who from the tribe of David will save Israel from the nations that are oppressing them. From, he will defeat all of the enemies of God's people and liberate us so that we can worship and serve God freely. Now, considering the current geopolitical climate, right, what's going on in the world, I think it would be wise to make myself absolutely clear that Israel that's talked about here is not the state of Israel that's currently in conflict. Nor is it necessarily referring to biological descendants of Abraham's or adherence to the Jewish religion, okay? Israel here is referring to God's chosen covenant people, the ones who he is partnering with in his mission to fill the earth with his glory. And although in the Old Testament, this was referring to the biological descendants of Abraham, if you read Romans 9, it makes clear that not all born of Israel are true Israel. Rather, the true Israelites are those who have faith in the God of the Bible and Jesus Christ and the Messiah whom he has sent, right? So I firmly 
believe that it is inappropriate to identify any state or political entity with this group, right? And to explore that more, this is a tangent that I do not have time for right now, but if you're really interested, let me know and I'll, I love discussing it. But that being said, right, it cannot be denied that the Messiah figure in the Old Testament, that it is partly promised to be a military deliverer. Verses 68 to 74 really brings this into view. And indeed, this was the expectations that most of the Jews had about the Messiah. Right? If you recall the story of Jesus' ascension, even in Acts 1, it seems like even up to the very point before Jesus ascended into heaven, his own disciples thought that this deliverance, this salvation will still come by means of some military campaign or war. And it's actually understandable why this kind of savior is appealing to Jewish people at that time, right? If you know their history, generation after generation, they were continually oppressed, empire after empire, conquering their home. And now, at the time of Jesus, the most powerful empire of all was over them. So things at that point were looking more hopeless than ever. And the only thing they could imagine solving that is if the Messiah had the might to take on and defeat even the mighty Roman Empire. Which is all true. The Messiah does have the might to confront and defeat the Roman Empire. And indeed, any world power that tries to stop God's people from serving him. However, nobody could have imagined how he proved to be victorious. Yet Zechariah's prophecy actually alluded to this towards the end there, where it says, the sunrise that will visit us from on high, right? That's the Messiah. What does he come to do? In verse 79, let's look at it. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And that, to me, is beautiful. That's the gospel right there. Because this points out how actually, even from the Old Testament, God has already identified that there is a hidden and insidious force that energizes the Roman Empire or any evil human empire, institution, and individual that harms, corrupts, and oppresses other humans. That's why after one is defeated, another one always shows up. And the Bible calls this force sin. And sin, but the Bible tells us, has this ultimate power called death. Death is the ultimate weapon that sin threatens us with, right? Such as here, death is called a shadow that is cast over all of us, which blocks out the light of God's generosity and grace, keeping us in darkness. Because apart from God, death is so mysterious and it really does seem like the end. And in the light of death, therefore, 
saving our own lives or at least enjoying it as much as possible while we can right now becomes the ultimate priority. And through that posture and mindset, we justify all our selfish, stupid decisions that deceives, divides, and harms one another. Isn't this proven and demonstrably true in our world? This is the curse the whole world is under right now. And so what we need, friends, is not this military power that will defeat through violence and bloodshed like every other power. What we need is someone to show us this light out of the valley of the shadow of death. Someone who will guide our feet to the way of peace, who can show us that being victorious and the ultimate glory is not earned through violence and show of might, but through peace. Friends, this is exactly what Jesus will ultimately show us in his life. Jesus confronted the fullness of the corruption and power of sin and emerged victorious. Jesus was tempted to save his life at the expense of his calling, but he resisted every time. He was mocked, beaten, reviled, but through it all, he never retaliated or even reviled those who wronged him. And he faced death, sin's greatest power, and took on its best shot on the cross and emerged victorious. Proven by the fact that after he confronted death, he was raised from the grave and unto glory, precisely so that the ones who rejected and mocked and ultimately murdered him can be brought out of the shadow of death so that we can live in the way of peace, no longer having the fear of death, having seen that Christ walked the way of peace and death could not hold him. And the reason why Jesus can do this is not only that he is the human king that was promised, but he is also God himself. Just the second thing Zechariah's prophecy here brings into view. Let's look at verse 78 again. Where does it say this, this sunrise, this Messiah will come from? It says it will come from on high. Ho upsilos in Greek from the uppermost, the highest place. Friends, in the Bible, no human is ever talked about coming from on high. That is exclusively the territory of God. So Jesus wasn't just some exceptionally gifted, special human that God happened to choose. No, the agent of salvation, the Messiah whom God has sent, is God was freely chosen to become a human. And it, and it was necessary for God to do this and be personally involved in saving us. Because not only has it been impossible for even the best human to walk the way of peace perfectly, but in order to have the power to not only overcome death, but to give us the life that is earned through this victory over death, he had to have the power of God himself 
That's why God, Jesus, our Savior, is called Emmanuel. God with us. So, one takeaway from this, friends, is that we can be as sure as anything that God will fulfill His promises. However, we need to appreciate the fact that God is free to fulfill His promises according to His good timing and to do so in ways that might be totally surprising to us. The Messiah, who will rescue all of creation from evil and death, turning out to be a crucified man being raised from the dead, is proof of this, right? Nobody thought that this was how things were going to play out. But we really struggle with this fact, don't we? With not being able to expect how God fulfills promises. The second, our timelines, our schedules, or our agendas are messed up, or when our circumstances do not meet our expectations, we freak out. And the more it looks unlikely that things will work out the way how we think it would be, we start losing hope. We start questioning what we're doing, maybe blaming ourselves, blaming other people, or even God. Until we eventually experience some sort of breakthrough and our circumstances change, or what we think is the better, then we start being hopeful again. However, I want to contend with you that this is not biblical hope. When our hopefulness is based on our circumstances, what we can do, what ha what's happening around us, and what odds our success are based on that, what we can have at best is not biblical hopefulness, but secular optimism. Because optimism is the ability to look at a given situation and see how the circumstances could work out for the best. Biblical hope, on the other hand, is not focused on circumstances. It's based on a person. In fact, the Bible consistently shows that truly hopeful people always seem to able to choose hope even when there is no empirical, measurable, tangible evidence that things will get better. And doing so by remembering God's past work, looking at how God has already been faithful to promise to rescue and restore His people and His creation. And because they trust in nothing else other than God's reliably good character. That he will be good in the future, but in the because in the past, he has proven always to be good. And the Bible tells us that in Jesus, we are given the clearest and most tangible image of God's goodness and love. Nothing is a better testimony of how God, of how committed God is to us and how he will do whatever it takes to make good on what he has promised to us. So here's one practical way that we can imitate Zechariah that we might cultivate this habit of hopefulness, right? Survey God's history with you and see 
if you can find if God has done something for you personally or for your family or your community that gives you reason to trust and hope in him right now. And if you find that, reflect on how Jesus did come as God has promised. 400 years after the last time he made that promise. What difference would it make to your life if this fact that Jesus ensures God's promises becomes the source of our enduring hope? Good for thought. I can tell you how Zechariah responded to that, and that's point three, okay? Just briefly. Cultivating a habit of hope happens by embracing our role in God's story. So lastly, notice the middle of the blessing um, of the Lord, right, for his steadfast love by Zechariah. Zechariah here in verses 76 to 77 addresses the task that is more immediately at hand. How his son will be the prophet of the Most High who is to be the one who goes before the Lord to prepare his ways, right? Now, this job description itself is actually a quotation from the Old Testament, from Malachi 3, chapter 1, to be specific. Denoting, telling us that, indeed, John had a unique and special role to play in God's redemption story. So let's immediately cross out the idea that we can be like John here, right? Jesus himself says later in Luke chapter 7, that John is a prophet and even greater than a prophet, and that none born of women is greater than he. Okay, so there is this one-of-a-kind, unrepeatable role that John plays as the final herald, the harbinger, before the ministry of the Messiah that's prophesied to come from ancient times. Okay, so we're not going to be like John the Baptist. That being said, I think we can safely say that there are overlaps between what John has been called to do and what the Holy Spirit empowers followers of Christ to do today. Because although we are by no means prophets in the way that John is referred to here, we too are actually tasked to connect people to the Lord by giving her knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. Some commentators here point out, helpfully, that the sense of the word knowledge here is not only theoretical, but it's a more holistic thing. So it's my, it might be more accurate to say it's more like through the experience of salvation. So it's not talking about simply lecturing people about the doctrine of soteriology, but actually about facilitating a holistic experience of salvation which is accessible through what? The forgiveness of sins. So, as Christians, we're not the ones saving people. We're not responsible for that. But what we can do and what we're called to do is actually be a point of contact between sinners and the one who has authority to forgive sins. Feel me? 1 Peter 2.9 expresses this beautifully when he calls Christians a royal priesthood, a holy nation chosen to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness 
and into marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, if you profess to follow Christ, this is the glorious calling that God had put in each of our lives. The privileged opportunity to not only be living in the hope, but actually help people have access to this hope. Now, John the Baptist did this by basically being a hippie and living out in the wilderness, eating bugs and honey and baptizing people in the river, right? And I seriously doubt that any of us are called to do it that way. And if you think that you are, maybe pray about it a couple more times because this is certainly not the only way, right? Opportunities to be sharing the hope that we have in Christ is all around us. And the people who needs to hear that their sins can be forgiven and that they can be reconciled with God is more so around us. Therefore, let us not regret, neglect in doing this rather. Because is it not just simply true that we actually enjoy something more when we get to share it with the people we love. And this, friends, for me, is by far the best thing about Christmas. Because, as Tazar mentioned in his liturgy a couple of times, for some reason, next week is going to be the time of year where people feel the most guilty about not going to church. As if it's more important to go then than it is on any other Sunday. Right? And just to be clear, it's not. Okay? And so, as misguided as that sentiment is, we have this window of opportunity every year where it's culturally very much acceptable to share with people in the hope that we have in Jesus. I, either by ourselves expressing and communicating this hope to them, or by inviting them into a community that's celebrating in this hope, that not only that they can hear the hope, but that we can enjoy it with them and all the more together. And we can all try to do that, I think. But if today, and you're hearing this, and you suddenly feel or you realize that you're actually needing of hope right now, if you're looking at the future right now and what you feel is anxiety or pessimism, what we are offering you today, what God is offering you today, is not only a reason to be optimistic. We are offering you a person, a God who has taken it upon himself to give you a living hope, not just better odds for success, a basis of hope that cannot be touched by your circumstances. So if today, friends, if you're needing hope and if you're willing to repent and stop and leave these habits of sins and self-reliance that we've cultivated in the darkness and we would trust Jesus as he guides us on the way of peace, you can have the blessed assurance that we were singing about, that your sins are forgiven too and you are already reconciled with God. That will never change no matter what your circumstances are right now. So no matter what you're going through, church, we can all cultivate this habit of hope 
by holding on to that fact that Jesus has come and that no eyes have seen nor ears have heard nor the heart of man has ever imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Amen.